Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. We are rounding the corner for Christmas, and uh, I know I'm getting good stuff, Ian, because I have been a good little boy. What about yourself? Oh, don't lie to people, David. You know what you've been this year. It's coal coming. <laughs> oh, I've, I've been great. I've been great. What about yourself? Coal. No, um, I don't I don't, uh, I don't know. I'm just looking forward to the, the time off and, and, and that kind of thing, and just uh, relaxing. I don't have anything specific on the horizon. I've gotten to the point in life where mostly the only thing I buy is is albums, and uh, you know when they come out, I just buy them. So you know, you know, your wife texted me the other day, and I'll go ahead and spoil the secret. She's getting you that Nickelback box set. Oh man, I've had my eye on that for quite some time. Look at this photograph, Ian. Is it me, or is do all of their songs sound the same? Mm. Meaning terrible. I can't tell you how many I've listened to, so it's not many. I know you have the albums. Oh, yeah, but I don't have the box set. You're getting the hand-numbered box set, and I think like a personalized letter from Chad Kroger. Oh, boy. He looks like uh, the lion from The Wizard of Oz, that guy. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry I spoiled it for you. That's okay. You know, sometimes I don't like to be surprised. You know? My Christmas present I gave you can't compete with the Nickelback. Not at all. It was a fantastic uh, gift. I just... Uh, I got it, I think, sometime in November. <laughs> well, yeah, because um, I'm terrible at shipping vinyl. And so it was only like two left at, at Amazon. So I went ahead and said, I'm just going to pull the trigger. So, hey, so you can listen to it during Christmas. I, we should explain. I got the, uh, the, the Super Deluxe box set of Stone Double Pilots' Tiny Music songs from the Vatican Gift Shop, which happens to be my favorite record by them. And it's a really nice treatment. They, they've done really nice reissues of of their first three albums so far which are the, the the ones i primarily enjoy so you know i've 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 got each of those we know, know if you're going to pay money for a box set it needs to be done right which i think the crows did a good job on that shake your money maker box set yes which we are still actively having the contest for from the last episode as i mentioned then that will close on december 31st and we will announce the winner shortly thereafter we got a so lot of keep, entries we have keep your entries coming and uh, just remember, it is the golden ticket prize. So out of the six winners, it'll be a mystery as to who's going to get the big box set prize. All right, everybody. We have a really, really, really good episode for you this week. Oh, yeah. We have been trying to get Johnny Colt on pretty much since day one. We were finally able to get the stars aligned, and he was gracious enough to give us, I don't know, a little over two hours of his time. Just a super humble, nice guy. And if you know, if you follow him... He doesn't talk about the Black Crows a lot, and I think you're, <laughs> you may see why when, we, when you listen to this interview, but he is very proud of his time with the Black Crows. He's very proud of the material they put on tape, and um, one of the things that I think got him to come on is he's releasing, basically it's a, it's a collection of sequential art of Ed Harsh, and there's still, uh, there's still a few available. There's several levels you can buy. One of them is like 500 bucks. It's already sold out, but the other ones are very, very reasonably priced. There are about three or four different editions of it all together, but it's, a, it's an entire run 
of uh, 500 copies altogether. Uh, it's a, a closed edition. It's all shots that were taken on 35 millimeter black and white by Johnny himself during the time that he spent on tour with Ed primarily. And uh, it's really cool. It's something that I think uh, the longtime Black Crows fans really enjoy. He has also started a Patreon. Now, if you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a fee per month service and there's different levels, but the one that's probably the most important to us is, uh, I think it's called, is it called Johnny Crow? So there's three tiers in his Patreon. The first one, uh, the entry level is called general admission. Then there's the second one that's called the front row. And then the one that probably most interesting to our listeners is the Johnny Colt Eric Crow's tier. And he's also calling this, I think the cult of personality anyway. So if you join that, he posts private photos, not private, but just photos. I think that he's not going to put on Instagram and any of the website of the band and, and him and throughout his career and art and stuff in his life. And also, I think there's going to be uh, Zoom calls and things of that nature. You can go on the website and get all the details of it. Anyway, I highly encourage you to be a part of it. You will enjoy it. And, and Johnny is very personable and interacts with people. And he's just a good guy. But more importantly, he is trying to, A, locate Ed Harsh's remaining family and also going to try to get a proper headstone for Ed's grave. Ian and I are going to help him with that. There's some other listeners and fans that are helping him with it. We'll have more details on that when once contact is made with his remaining family and see if they're okay with that. But that is a very important project to us. It's very important, really important to Johnny, as you will hear. Ed Harsh gave us a lot of joy and happiness and this is a little something we can do to help Ed's legacy and his memory. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, we're hoping that all comes together because, uh, you know, we've gotten on board to help as much as we can. Johnny even mentions that, you know, perhaps taking some of the proceeds towards uh, taking care of this, this headstone situation. And he's also got a couple other projects that I want to tell you about. And you can find all this. Go to his Instagram, click on his bio, and he, as you'll hear him talk about, he's got a link tree. He has a uh, song out coming. It's actually out now under his name, Johnny Colt called Latina Love Machine. You can find that on Spotify. Also, he um, gave us a discount code to his website, SOA10. Put that in there and you'll get 10% off of uh, anything you purchase there. And then also he's getting into the NFT business. Ian asked me earlier what exactly that was and I gave him my very rudimentary understanding of it. It's a piece of digital artwork that uh, from my understanding... You're the only person that will ever own it, and you know a value is assigned to it. And so you can find the information for all that in his link tree. Johnny got a lot going on, and he's getting more involved with the crow stuff. And he's got some cool stuff outside of the crows going on. His Instagram is fun to watch. He does Instagram lives all the time of him painting and, and talking with other artists. And sometimes he just gets on there and, and talks music. But let's get to the episode because uh, this is a really long one. It's one of the more fascinating interviews I've ever been a part of, regardless of which podcast I've been uh, recording. Let's say this got a little bit for everybody. It is raw as raw can be. It's emotional at times, and it's hysterical at times. Yeah, this is uh, one of the coolest interviews we've ever done, and I really like to present this one to everybody because it is it is genuinely honest, and you know, you'll get a lot out of it. There's a lot of cool stories in it, but... Most of all, you can kind of figure out where Johnny's head was at then and where it's at now. And, and it's just a really good conversation. I, I really enjoyed it immensely. I know you did too, David. I did. The two hours went by fast. 
he trusted us to do this interview and and to to not take advantage of, you know asking him any questions although he did not he said nothing was off limits but we had some listener questions in it could not have been a nicer guy just a really cool guy down to earth humble this was a this was a bucket list one for us it definitely was and i'm glad it happened and uh, you know I, I really get the impression we'll be speaking with johnny again in the future um, and, and doing some cool things with him down the line. I really do want to encourage uh, everybody that listens to us to uh, jump on board Johnny's Patreon, even if you get in at the general mission level. Uh, that, that tier starts at $4 per month. So, you know, basically for uh, you know, a cup of coffee or two, you can get in and support Johnny. If you do sign up after hearing this episode, you know, let Johnny know we sent you over. I believe actually he had something uh, for the first uh, 10 people, was it, David? Yeah, you'll hear him talk about it in here, but uh, the first 10 people to sign up for Patreon, regardless of level, after uh, they listen to our episode, once our episode drops, uh, he's going to send them a little something. Yeah, so, uh, you know, please do uh, get in there and show Johnny support for all he's done for us as uh, fans during uh, what many folks refer to as the classic era of the band. And, uh, you know, let him know his time with us was uh, worthwhile. Yeah, add add his name to the list of Steve Gorman, Mark Ford, Sven Pippian, guys that were full-time members of the band that are just as nice and down-to-earth as can be. Exactly. Anyway, so uh, like we said, this is, a, this is a very raw, emotional, and also at times hysterical interview. All right, everybody, here he is, Johnny Cole. All right, everybody, this is a, a really, really cool day for us. We have been wanting this guy on since day one of the podcast. I know all of you have been asking us to have him on, and the stars aligned, and, and we found a very, very good reason to have him on. So without further ado, it is our extreme honor to welcome Mr. Johnny Colt to the podcast. Hey, is this the part where the intro to Remedy is playing behind our voices? Yes, it can be. Yeah, uh, like Howard Stern has it too. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, Johnny, first of all, uh, I think one of the highlights for me during the quarantine was your Instagram lives. First of all, you did it for a good cause. You raised money for charity, which I donated. I know Ian donated, and I know a lot of our listeners donated. Tell us about that real quick, because I, you got really engaged with people on a musical level, kind of a spiritual level, an art level. Was that cathartic for you? Well, what a great question <laughs> out of the gate. So when the pandemic happened, I've got a, a number of friends from the CDC from living in Atlanta forever. Um, and uh, one of my closest friends here at the beach is a doctor. And I kind of knew I caught on to this being a guy who was in journalism at one point. I still keep an ear and all that. And, and I knew there's something crazy was going on in China. I was watching that stuff on YouTube, like what's happening. And some my friends at the CDC called me and were like, Hey, we got a problem. So I kind of, I knew it was coming and I, I, I felt weird because I kind of knew more about it than anyone around me. And I tried to share with people and they just weren't, their heads weren't around it. You know what I mean? So I was scared, like genuinely like, oh, shit, you know, and then it was in Italy, right? It was raging in Italy and no one around me was like people were just kind of do do do, you know, 
and I was freaked out. So I don't like being afraid. I don't know anyone who likes being afraid. And um, when I'm afraid, I like to go on offense. So once school, you know, I was teaching school and it was mask mandates. We didn't know if we were going to be open. It just went crazy. So once we were told to stay home, uh, I was teaching over Zoom, but that actually gave me some time back every day. So I thought, you know, what can I do? Sorry, this is a long answer, but I was like, what can I do to go on offense? Uh, and then, you know, once you, we had no idea how big the impact was, but there's a lot of people that needed food. And I liked the food thing because I hated the political environment. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to get into politics. It's, I just want to be helpful. So who can argue with feeding people, right? So right. I started a very simple thing where I didn't know what else to do. So I just said, hey, look, um, I wasn't really at a place where I was selling my artwork, but I was like, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll trade it for a donation. And I didn't want to have to do any administrative stuff. So I was like, look, you do a screenshot of your donation and send me your address and I'll send you art. And it turned out we raised, uh, and you guys were very supportive of me and I appreciate that. And I don't remember the exact number, but we were near 40,000 meals or something. Wow. When we kind of, kind of called it a day on that and wrapped it up. So yeah, it was, a, it was, I wanted my kids, my wife and my friends to see me doing something with the fear instead of the fear kind of controlling me. So I don't know if I accomplished that per se, but it certainly was better than sitting around with my thumb up my ass. You know what I'm saying? Like kind of freaked out. So. Well, you used the platform that you had. That's right, all you can do. Because I've been on Instagram since not the very beginning, but I'll put it this way. I know I've been on Instagram since their second logo. If you've ever seen all the logos, right. <laughs> I was, I was at the second logo, you know, and there's people I've been following for man forever. It feels like forever. And I kind of stunned by it. And it's been a really beneficial thing to me touring and being away from my family. I, I social networking is really been uh, a pot mostly, you know, like anything, right? But for me, it's been mostly a really, really positive experience. So I was very comfortable kind of stuck in my house, but going, hey, you know, I've got this amazing way to connect with people. And uh, I find it to be, I make more direct contact now than even when touring in the band and meeting people at meet and reads and stuff. I just feel like my quality, you know, my signal to noise ratio is, is, uh, is good. I mean, it, you know, I work to keep it that way, but it's pretty good. Have you always been into art or is this something that really came about, you know, once you started being sober in the mid to late nineties? No, uh, art. I was a fan of art, but I didn't really create any visual art. Like I didn't to grow, I didn't grow up drawing. I mean, I drew like I used to in high school, well, not high school, middle school, you know, I would draw like Van Halen stage setup on my notebook because, you know, I wasn't doing any schoolwork. <laughs> so, no, I, I didn't do art. I ended up. It was a really weird thing. We, you know, I live in a, a small beach community and it's a pretty small, sleepy place. And I started teaching school to help the school. It's a small private school where my son went. My daughter went there, too. And after all the years of being on the road, I just wanted to be near my uh, my kids and. I wanted to be more in my son's life, uh, kind of hit me, you know, like I didn't have a dad. So it just, when he got to a certain age, I just really, it was a, it was a healing thing for me to be there and focus on him. And 
I needed to put my career, my businesses and everything down for a minute. So I taught school. Anyways, I was helping with art. I loved it. And I don't know. I don't know what the fuck happened. I just, I had a great, like I was co-teaching this amazing woman that was the art teacher. And I got three or four friends down here that are like full on artists, very successful ones. And I just, and my close friend, Todd Murphy is from Atlanta. He passed away from cancer recently. It's heartbreaking, but he really pushed me to draw. And then honestly, it was a combination of that and helping the kids. And I started taking some classes to be able to help the kids. But it's when I realized the mental benefits the reduction in anxiety, the ability to concentrate, like there's a whole bunch of things that all of a sudden it was like, man, this is like making music. Plus I just sort of dove in like crazy dove in as I will do and hyper-focus. And so, man, I just started drawing and taking classes online and I, I would call artists, which is kind of cool. One of the cool things about being in a band and having a cool history is people usually will talk to you. So I would literally call people that were so fucking far out of my league and everybody, but everybody was freaked out because of the pandemic and kind of wasn't working. I would just see an artist I thought was amazing. I just call them or email, you know, I'd get on buzz them and be like, Hey man, uh, you teach over zoom. I'll, I'll pay you for your time. And next thing you know, like they're my teachers and man, they just, I've sailed me along. It's been so great. But you know, once you know a modality like learning music, all that, uh, the pro if you know how to learn, right, that process translates. So you can, you can cover some ground pretty quickly. But I mean, when you spend all day and all night doing something, you'll cover some ground pretty quickly. It, it must have been exciting going, you know, spending so many years in music and then kind of shifting your creative focus to art. It must have kind of been a, a different type of release than, than music was necessarily. Yeah, it's very different. I mean, music is, um, so there are things that visual art does that music doesn't do, but there are significant things that music does that visual art doesn't do. Now, visual art cues emotions in people, make no mistake, but you've got a hard time making a, um, a claim that visual art touches us emotionally as much as music does. That's not true. I'm not saying there's not certain people, you know, making kind of a, a blanket statement. And we all know there's always exceptions to the rules. And uh, and I'm no visual genius. So don't get me wrong. I'm not the expert. But we all know, right, that a film needs a soundtrack to help drive home the emotional components. So there is a visceral sort of component to music that moves me that visual art doesn't it doesn't move me the same. But the benefits that come with it uh, and producing it and creating it are very, very dynamic beyond the realm of looking at it. Now, I'm a huge fan of visual art and I'm very moved by parts of it, but it's a thing that to really get the benefit of it, I've got to do it. Uh, if that makes any sense. I see I can get a lot of benefit from listening to music. I guess what, I'm not being very articulate. What I'm saying is this, look, I can play and get super stoked, but I can also listen to I just you know I was listening to Sabbath yesterday and I was just as moved as I was when I was a, a fucking ten year old. So <laughs> okay, but for me, visual arts a beautiful thing to see and experience. But for me to get the benefits of doing it that I'm talking about, I have to make it. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sense? Yeah. So, Johnny, one of the things that that kind of brings us to why we have you on for this episode is I started watching your Instagram lives. Like I said, when um the pandemic hit and 
you speak very eloquently about how you're not a person that lives in the past. You don't look back at the past. You're looking on for the next thing and living in the moment, which I think more of us probably need to do. But one of the things you mentioned on one of those Instagram live videos where you were surprised by how many Black Crows fans were watching and chiming in. I was surprised by that because, uh, I mean, obviously you, you were in that band from the beginning. Is is that just something you've like consciously not thought about? Because it seems like in the last couple of weeks or slash month, you've gotten more in that Black Crows realm for a little bit. What what spurred that on? Well, a, f- a few things. So I think the idea that there's sort of a a resurgence of the crows with me specifically i'm gonna i'm I'm gonna make this very concise but i'm gonna flip what i'm saying so when i left the crows you know i i moved on i didn't leave the the crows uh out of uh you know a direct sort of a moment of passion or it wasn't an impulsive decision is what I'm saying. A lot was put into it. And uh, I stayed more than a year after I had decided to leave to see if I couldn't fix the problems or, or, or fix myself or, you know, what could I do to get this musically heading in a direction that I could believe in. So when I moved on, I moved on and there wasn't much left to mourn the parts that I loved and what I wanted to be doing and why I was in it, those kind of left right in front of my face, you know? So it's like any relationship that's coming to an end. So the work speaks for itself. My decisions speak for themselves. And frankly, I got on with my life. You know, there's definitely a cult of personality around that band and a, and a hard group think. And I had, you know, gotten deprogrammed and graduated myself from, from the, uh, the negative parts of what happens when you're in a successful band, not just the crows. Many of these things happen in every band and they happen in the bands that I played in (laughs) after that. (laughs) I've seen the movie many times. So all that to say, I moved on and I'm not really a guy that, you know, I'm just not in the past and there wasn't anything left for me in the crow world. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean for a second that I didn't 100% appreciate every fan who made all of that possible. I have a life because of that. I'm only okay because of that. I didn't have any other option in life. Crows hadn't worked out for me. I'd have been in real trouble as a human being. I'd have been in trouble. And so there's no shortage of gratitude. But at the same time, you know, as you go on with your career, you, you know, that's a big shadow. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a huge shadow. And it's sometimes it's best to. It, it's hard because you're dealing with your own ego and stuff, but sometimes you got to just shut the door on shit to get yourself to the next stage, to get to the next stage, to get strong enough, to get independent and, and be successful. And it was very important to me to prove to myself, that this I wasn't a one-trick pony, that I was a real journeyman and a real musician, and I could do this in multiple environments. And then I had, of course, to be successful at multiple things. I had to get in the land business, start a company. And of course, I overdid all that too. But it's a long answer. Just everything <laughs> you can say. That's, a, that's the great thing about podcasts. It's long form. So <laughs> yeah, it's not a concise answer, but but the the but the 
point to the whole thing is to live your journey. This is what I'm saying. You really have to come to terms with what it's like to live in the here and now. If you want to live in authenticity, you got to stay out of the past, but you got to stay out of the future. And we're all ping-ponging between our past and the future. There was, there's nothing at the dinner table of the Black Crows for me at this stage. Not a single fucking thing other than being with the people who love what I participated in. That's it. There's, you know, for me to be here with you because of how much love you give back to what I was part of. And it's more than me. You know, I was part of something. And I don't care who wants to take credit or claim anything. No one, indiv every individual was part of something. And there's so many people that it took to make that happen besides the guy standing on stage. So look, what I'm saying is this. The songs are there. The music's done. Okay. Those guys do what they do. That time period is frozen, right? And it's authentic. It speaks for itself. How great is that? Because now I just get to be with people and connect and talk about it in a very positive but real and authentic way, we get to celebrate that, but that's about continued connection. Because without the continued connection, who gives a shit? Right. It's, it's that simple. So I do want to say this. Uh, the real catalyst for like, why now? You know, you're showing up and a few things converged. I heard from some people. One guy was making a book and called me and this guy and that. But my mother sent down, she's, she's older, she moved to a new place, and I had no idea that I had as many things as I did from, I'm not, a, I'm not much of a collector of anything, and I didn't realize that I had as many things as I did, as many tapes, as many things, you know, because I just live in it, you know, I'm not playing at it, I'm living it, so Suddenly, this shipment comes down from Atlanta into my storage space, and unbeknownst to me, not only was there all these things that I didn't know that existed, my mother had collected everything, like every fan club thing. Every she had a Billboard subscription for Kenya. I mean, it's like <laughs> it's like it's very obsessive. It's my mom's very her, but suddenly I'm staring at all these things, and. I then realized that I had more, I knew I had a lot of photography, but once that came down and I saw it, I was like, wow, hold on a minute. And it hadn't been cataloged. And then I found out that I had a ton of stuff with this photographer, Paul Natkin, who's a friend of the Crow family. He's like, hey man, I have all this, you know, file cabinets full of your stuff. So once all that came in, I needed to go through it. I was kind of forced to sort of, it felt like the right thing to do, the responsible thing to do, not just for myself, but for like, you know, this might be important in here. And the truth be told, I would have never known that uh, anyone would care about the Black Crows 30 years later. So at some point you do kind of begin to feel not to be hoity-toity, but you definitely kind of feel a little bit of responsibility to go kind of like, all right, well, maybe there's something really important in here. You know, maybe there's some stuff in here no one's seen. I don't know. That was the case in, in multiplicity. 
And in the process, the first thing that I tackled was that stood out to me was um, Eddie. For the vast majority of your time that you were in the Black Crows, Ed Harsh was in that band with you. He is, without a doubt, the most beloved member of that band. He never catches any shrapnel from anybody. And he is the main reason that, uh, that you decided to come on this week because you've got a couple of things in the works and we're going to get to those in a second, but what was it like the first time you met Ed Harsh? So I had forgotten a lot. And when I saw photographs of Eddie at all, some things flooded back to me about how much time Eddie and I spent together in the early years, how much of a real guy Eddie was, how similar our backgrounds had been, how much experience we both had in individually before joining the Crows compared to the rest of the band in life and in music. And then when we traveled, Eddie and I were consummate tourists, but in that Robert Plant style, like we went out to see everything together. I cannot tell you how many photographs. Ed carries a video camera. Mm -hmm. I'm carrying a still camera. <laughs> And, you know, his video camera is huge. This is back in the day. And I'm using <laughs> film, like real film. I cannot tell you how many pictures I have of Eddie looking like with his camera. Like, I'm like, it's just hilarious. I'm like, why am I taking so many pictures of Eddie filming? But we just went out constantly with a beginner's mind. And we didn't give a shit. We would go and journey. We would go anywhere. You know, it just, we didn't care. We'd go see the river. We'd take walks. We'd look at the architecture. We would go book shopping. We would, and it was just magical. On top of being on stage with a guy who could just play his fucking ass off, I had forgotten. I mean, I knew Eddie and I were close, but I had forgotten how important my time with Eddie was because the end was so different from the beginning. And when you go out through that lens, I had just never really quite adjusted my perception back to an, a balanced reality where, where Ed was concerned. There you have it. What was it like the first time you met him? Because I, I imagine like the first time he sat in with you guys to rehearse or whatever, and you heard him play, was it kind of like the light shining down from heaven on him? Or Well, the what I remember most is that Eddie came down. Uh, this is how I remember it. Now, you got to remember, Eddie was older than us, mm -hmm. but I had been playing in bands myself where I was, most of the guys in the band I was in before the Crows, they were all about eight years older than I was. And our original guitar players, like my first real band, had, was this guy, Mo Gary Moore from Mother's Finest, Moses. Guy can play his fucking ass off. So, and the bass player in that band was Wizard, who would later play with Stevie Nicks. This, this dude rips. And I was just a kid, and Mo had to really mentor me and coach me and get me up to speed. I had just been around older guys. So I was very comfortable with Eddie. I think the other guys were just a slightly thrown. Not in a negative way, but just like we're kids, you know, and here's Eddie, you know, and here's, he's got a crazy mullet when that wasn't a thing. And you know what I mean? You're just kind of like, what the fuck? But, you know, with Chuck Lavelle recommending him, you knew the guy could play. But Eddie and I's relationship didn't start with music. Eddie had come down and nobody was really spending any time with them. So, and, and in fairness to everybody, we were playing our hometown. We were in Atlanta. You know, it was very busy, very crazy. and. After, I think it was the second show, I took Eddie. I said, look, let's go drinking. So we went out to a strip club uh, <laughs> with uh, Rick Rubin and uh, George, our producer, and a couple of other people. 
that sounds like the beginning of a joke. <laughs> I know, right? It's true, right? Um, and so we gone to the strip club, and uh, I had uh, I knew people that worked there. Say it like that, and uh, <laughs> say it like that. and you know my label president's there, Ruben's there. You know, something like I talked to guy. I said, hey, talk to one of the girls. Like, hey, you got to come over, please. When you're ready, come over, do a dance for Rick. You know, I'm just trying to be cool, trying to be a hotshot, really. And um, <laughs> so basically, we're all sitting at a table and the girl comes over and uh, she's super nice and super professional. And then there's a table full of suits next to us. Now, I say that like, you know, like the socias and the suits, like, you know, like we're in high school, but <laughs> these are pretty straight laced people. That's what I'm saying. Right. So these guys are are hammered, man. And one of them comes over and decides to start trying to tip the girl who's dancing for Rick. Now, let me make this clear. That's not how it works. <laughs> There's etiquettes inside a strip club like anywhere else. And if you've paid a girl to be dancing for your friend or your table or whatever, you don't go interrupt her. So I tell the guy to fucking sit down and... Uh, the next thing I know, he's super drunk. So he takes a wild swing at me. I had sat back down. So he takes a wild swing at me and kind of jumps me, but he's super drunk. And it's not that big of a deal. I grab him and pull him close to me. Cause if you, if you, if you know anything about confrontation, you want to close the distance. It's very hard for somebody to hurt you when they're very, very close to you. Uh, and I'm in an awkward position cause he's coming over my shoulder. So I know exactly what I just grab his shirt. I pull him into me and I, we go off my stool and hit the ground. I actually have the situation under control or at least I'm pretty drunk, but myself, but it's kind of a professional drinker back then. And I, at least in my mind, I had it under control. I'm sure <laughs> if you were there, you might've been like, man, he's getting jumped. But, um, <laughs> and I remember hitting the, well, I do. I clearly remember hitting the ground cause the guy had like on a gray suit. So we hit the ground and things were not out of control at that point. And I look up and the next thing I see is Eddie and his mullet <laughs> jumping. He comes diving on top of the guy. Well, the problem is no one's going to really get hurt here until Eddie gets And Here comes full Eddie's tall as shit. He's, he comes flying in. Now Eddie's on top of the guy, but the guy's on top of me. So now I'm completely pinned. I can't do shit. And I'm looking up and here's Eddie. This fucking Canadian guy, we don't even know, just wailing on the back of the guy's head <laughs> with his hands that he plays piano with. He didn't give a shit, man. He was going. And I and I remember just thinking, you know, it didn't surprise. It's it's one of those things where I was just like, yeah, right on. It's my kind of guy. So we got up. We got thrown out of the club. Long story. All we did was go down the street to Tattletales. <laughs> But let me let me guess. You were at the Cheetah to begin with. We were in some place called the Gold Club. Oh, okay. <laughs> very, very. It's like the Cheetah and the Gold Club were the top two, and then you drop down a tier, and that was sort of Tattletales. You usually <laughs> went to Cheetah Gold Club first, and then you end at Tattletales. Tattletales is actually the place with the girls that you go that go home with. It's a different. It's a whole different dance. <laughs> uh, that's a long, long time ago. So it just. That's what my group of guys before the Crows, that's how they all would have been. You wouldn't bat. Of course he jumped in, right? I would later learn that I was in the company of people who weren't raised the same and didn't behave the same. And, and Ed and I would learn those lessons the hard way. But I'll tell you what, what I do know is that I don't, I, Ed has a quote about it. I've seen it, but 
I don't remember the words exactly, but he's basically right. I mean, we all met back up and I said, look, man, I don't know if this guy can play, but he can he fucking jump right in and can fight. So he's I, good enough with me. <laughs> and um, he's my kind of fucking guy. And that was a big deal that Ed was that kind of person. And um, even though this story is very juvenile uh, on many levels, the, the important part, the, the, the takeaway is this. Eddie was a real dude. And as long as I was in the band with him, he stayed a real guy and he weathered a lot of bullshit. And um, unfortunately, extracurricular behavior and things were, were taking a toll on him hard by the time I left all on all of us. I, I, I'm included. But um, so that clouded things. But but Eddie. You know, I don't remember ever seeing Eddie be un, unpolite to a fan. I don't remember ever seeing Eddie dishing out attitude that wasn't, you know, I don't remember seeing any attitude unless it was appropriate. Like Ed got mad at me one time for being a drunken asshole. And I was, and he was was very clear with me and he was very straightforward, but he wasn't wrong, but he also wasn't malicious about it. He, I needed to hear it and he knew I needed to hear it and he fucking laid it on me, but not one ounce more, you know, it wasn't vindictive. It wasn't sadistic. It was just like, dude, (laughs) the fuck and i'm like yeah i know so um but i'm just saying i never saw ed do anything that even remotely looked unfair or unkind now he's a human being and and like we said he had pro- he had different kind of problems you know well i i kind of operate under the assumption in life that everybody can't be wrong when you have so many people from so many different angles say the same thing it's usually correct and whether it's when we had gorman on here sven pippian ford jeff dunn Everybody yeah, done. Yes. <laughs> everybody says the same thing that he was just a joy to be around. There was yeah. no attitude. He was humble. And in all honesty, he could probably outplay anybody that ever got on the stage with you, but he wasn't braggadocious about it. No, he wasn't braggadocious about it, but I, I tell you what though, he, if I may, you know, um, part of why Ed's not with us is because Ed did not have the ability to handle real emotional confrontation you know ed would jump in a fight with you but when a person when the unthinkable was beginning and personality types were warping man he 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 didn't handle it and you know he he kept it to himself is what i'm saying and his way of handling it is part of what how we got to the end result of that that we did i say that with love and respect like i said what you know we all have strengths and weaknesses and the things that were happening happening to us intrapersonally, no one was prepared for. It took its it took its toll in different ways. So again, I say that that doesn't take anything away from your statement about Ed. It doesn't at all. Ed, um, far from a saint, he was a great, kind human being. But man, that environment eventually, as it did many people, just emotionally ate Ed's fucking lunch. I'm sorry to say, but I'm just stating what I think we all know in a certain way. That's all. I think it's great, though. You've you've assembled a book, uh, Postcards from the Edge, a collection of your photos, primarily dealing with Ed. And I really think it's a, a really nice tribute to him. I actually uh, just received in the mail yesterday the, the one print that you uh, had put up of Ed sitting at his piano with his cigarettes and everything. I think the, the photos that you taken of him really capture what I believe to be his essence. And uh, what, what kind of led you to, to want to put together that book? 
I think one of the things about the pictures of Eddie as once I sat down with him, it took me places in my mind and it actually created, I needed to do some work. And I thought a lot about Ed, what I remember of Ed. And again, that sort of open hearted, all about music, part of the group, fight on your side, whether you're wrong or right, and then fucking deal with you later kind of thing is you know, Ed would want me to take a hard look at anything and be, and be again, be, be fearless about it. I didn't open my, the Crow's Vault. I, I had no interest in it. And I had no interest in revisiting these components of it that we're now discussing. At the time, I had no, for 20 years, I didn't, I, more. Yeah, I didn't care. Listen, I'm not kidding. I posted something the other day. I hadn't listened to Curse Diamond. And I don't know if I've heard that song in like 18 years, 20 years, 15 years, something. Like, <laughs> I don't know. And it's not because I don't like that time period. It's like, I was there. I, I, we made it, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting here staring at a painting I did three years ago either. So, but sitting with Ed's pictures, I realized there was something there. And I began to feel a real profound sense of sadness. And the sadness was very profound and very deep because when I left the band, Ed and I never spoke again. Mm. And there's a number of reasons for that. I don't think that Ed intentionally didn't speak to me, nor I to him. When I left, I was a pariah. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the only guy that left. And, you know, in that particular environment, I know how it works. Like I knew what happened. I'd be a dead man. You know, I'd be written off immediately. It wasn't like we're going to find an amicable way to leave or depart. People weren't capable of that. You know, you would get anger, frustration or, or indifference, one or the other. So it wouldn't have been like, you couldn't be Ed and walk around going, Hey, I just talked to Johnny. He's doing great. Like, and I didn't feel like I, I felt like trying to reach out to people would put them in a bad position. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like, man, you know what? Those guys, I'm, I'm a stressor. Right. And then I just moved on and everybody moved on and that's the way it stayed. I'm not saying there would be some heartfelt regret or that Ed and I, it's not that. What I realized was it is what it is. And I've come to accept that. And I a hundred percent accept my role in it. I could have called Ed. I could have followed up with Ed at any time. But so Ed could have with me, right? So that's okay. That can live like that. But what's not okay is that certain aspects of the experience, time, accumulative series of decisions, even creative decisions that other people have made that impact the legacy that I was part of, they don't work for me. They don't work for me on all kinds of levels. But somehow that has limited my ability to take full ownership of something that I was a significant part of. So it's through Ed that it just, I didn't realize that. It was through Ed where I realized, oh shit, I've got the door closed on some things that are very important to me and that I earned and they're rightfully mine. And I have the right, if I have the courage to go back and claim those things for my own. And that's exactly what you see happening. And it started with Ed.
And then the process is just starting to kind of continue, hence me being here talking to you about it. And there's also a theme where components like Ed don't get the attention that they deserve. I mean, if you had a musician like Ed, would you not be celebrating that person before, beginning, during, and after? You have to understand, man, when I, when I joined Skinner, these are the best musicians. I've, Gary Rosling is the best guitar player I've ever fucking seen. And I've been around some great ones. And these are the kind of people that were like, more. We want more of you. Go out front, get downstage, meet me on the ramp, be in the picture, write the song with me. I need you, more of you, and I need more of you, and I need more of everybody, more of everything, the best parts of everybody. And that's an attitude that I would like to be able to continue, even though I couldn't continue with Skinner. And Skinner has its own issues, positives and negatives. So with that in mind, you know, I had sort of that wind at my back. And once I began to crack the nut on Ed, it just became apparent that Ed needed his own space. You know, he earned his own space. He certainly did with me. And uh, who doesn't love and respect Ed? And I'd love to be able to get and share some of the Ed that I know. And as a caveat to all that fucking shit, how about just, wow, it would be really nice to just get to celebrate a part of the Crows without the mired sort of wet blanket that kind of surrounds the band most of the time. Yes. I mean, Ed seems to kind of transcend that in a way. Right. I mean, Eddie's Eddie's an easy sword to use to cut right through the fucking Edwardian knot that is the Crows. Just whack. Fuck all that. Let's get to what matters. Right. Here's what I'm saying. At this stage of the game, to write a book of any kind means that you deal with a publisher. And a publisher gets in your fucking head and starts to tell you things they want and what they want to see. And then sensationalism begins involved. And then points of view. And then your ego's in. And then there's a contract. And they're paying you. So you're beholden. And you want to people please. And all the bullshit that goes on with fucking the arrested development that is everybody that plays in every one of these fucking bands. These people make great fucking music, but emotionally they're 14 fucking years old. <laughs> you wanted to be in a rock band when you were 13 or when you're prepubescent and everything's fucking changing your brain chemistry. And most, and I mean fucking most in my experience, 90 fucking percent of the people I know that do it, they're fucking still there. And that's a boring ass fucking movie for me. Mm. I fucking was done with that movie when I was 27, when I fucking moved on. Fuck, do I want to visit that again? Get the fuck out of here. I don't want to have that conversation. So the interesting thing about approaching it this way is I'm not going to put myself in a trap. Certainly not for a fucking dollar. I mean, let's, let me tell you something. When you're 28 years old and you leave the Black Rose with nothing to fall back on, you think I got a fucking, I don't, I don't have what it takes to keep my bills paid and not fucking succumb to some sort of publisher or a record deal. I'm not afraid to work. I taught fucking high school for three years just fucking because that's freedom. That's Andy Kaufman working as a fucking bus boy while he's still on the show taxi fucking keeping his feet on the ground. I don't have any time. Listen, if I get started, I'll, I don't like to talk about this stuff because I start getting, I transcend past legitimacy and I become self-righteous. I'm fucking toe in the line, right? Of authenticity. 
while the people around me are fucking off as far as I'm concerned and full of shit. Now, when you start doing that, now I'm becoming full of shit right here on the air with you because now I'm going, the scale's flying too far towards self-righteous. That has to do with cues inside me of the things that happen in the band that still don't go away. And that's okay that they don't. It's okay that they're there. It's really just what I do about them, which brings me back to the Ed Project. So here's how I positioned it. Technically, what it is, is a closed edition series of sequential art. There are only 500 copies and there are only going to be 500 copies. They are hand signed, hand numbered, one run. You're not going to see it again. Not this way. These are postcards to Ed. We're pen pals over the distance of 20 years and he's not, we're not, he's not even on the same plane, material plane as we are. That doesn't mean my relationship with Ed can't be honored, 100% intact, connected to what was great about it. Still acknowledging what was negative about it, but I don't have to live there anymore. I get to reclaim my relationship with Ed in the best way, celebrate it with the people who love him. We can all acknowledge him. So really postcards from the edge are, you know, Ed's moved on. And these postcards are for us to send to Ed energetically. Now, having said that, please don't pull the page out of the book and try to po- try to mail it. I actually made the first draft as real postcards. <laughs> but but if you do that with that many pictures, apparently, a lot of this is new for me, the ink will crack at the binding. So I had to actually take the page weight down. So it's energetic postcards. I know one person's literally going to pull one out. <laughs> mail the fucking thing, you know, because it has an area for a stamp and all that shit. Please don't do that. And I didn't want to write a bunch in the book either. I just want you to experience Ed. It's just a beautiful shot. I can't wait for everyone to see it. It's not a ton of photos. It's, it's, there's maybe 30 images of Ed or something. But, man, does that fucking warm your heart, man? When that guy smiles, man, you're just like, it's like love. You know, he's, he's hugging you. You know what I mean? It's incredible. So I'm just excited about it. And what most important is I've been able to find a creative way to navigate into the crow thing in a, in, a, in a real, authentic, but positive way where I've been able to position this in a way where I'm frankly bulletproof. It's self-published. Right. It's a piece of art. It's a limited edition. So that's important. And, and to be honest with you, that's the type of environment that you navigate. Even after all this time, you got to be realistic about what's happening. Now, having said that, I'm not making any insinuations that this is on anybody's radar or they would have anything other than a positive opinion about it. But we live in a world, this is not a crow thing, we live in a world where no matter what I'm doing, let's say I want to do pictures of Skinner or whatever I want to do, you know, you have to be very careful about how you execute these kind of concepts and ideas. Uh, There's multiple tiers of the book because frankly, it's interesting and exciting. And I get to do some uh, hand embellished prints of Ed. I'm very excited to draw and paint Ed. I've painted him like once or twice. It's a lot of fun. So people are participating. I think like the the first, the diamond's gone. I think the gold sold out. The platinum sold out. I think the gold has a few more left and that's okay. The silver, there's plenty of copies. And I don't really, I, I had initially planned to make 250 books. That's all this was going to be. I didn't really think, I don't know how many Ed books will sell in general, but the only reason it went from 250 to 500, honestly, is because when you, I learned the printing business it's literally like $300 more to have 200. You know what I mean? Like it was like the price or for 250 or 500 was like 300 more dollars. And I was like, well, fuck that. I'll just, 
we'll have a bunch of cool, if nothing else, we'll just have a bunch of ed books around and we'll find something really cool to do with them. Maybe we'll do a charity thing with that set. Or I don't know. We'll just figure it out. So that's what I did. So I've got a copy ordered. I know Ian does. Pretty much everybody I know that's kind of in our little circle has one ordered and can't wait to get those in. And you can go to your Instagram page and go to your bio and find the link to all that. But one of the things that you had mentioned to me in our private messaging, and I've, I've, I know you've talked about it some in public, is trying to get a better headstone for Ed. Yeah, um, thank you for bringing that up. So in this process, this is how I know for me, these are the signs I look for that tell me I'm heading the right direction in life. You know, I don't want it to be all about me. I'm a very egocentric guy. I'm very self-absorbed, like most musicians I know, most creatives. And I have to do a whole bunch of things on a daily fucking basis to be a better dude who can have empathy and connect to people. And I always want to try to meet people in the middle. That's my fucking job. No more, no less, right? Half of everything that happens is my responsibility. So when it comes to the Ed situation, someone sent me a message when I announced the book showing me Ed's headstone. And I was blown fucking away. It's like a wood cross, like Mm -hmm. a little brass plate. And in the background is a bunch of what I consider real headstones. Right. Now, there's a picture in the book of Eddie and myself. Eddie's brand new. I don't even know. I don't know where he is in the arc of being in the band. But this is like literally like it might have been in that same day we got in a fight because where we are is we're in Macon. And Eddie's got the the wicked mullet. So good. And uh, (laughs) But we're sitting at Barry Oakley and Dwayne Allman's grave together. Mm. And honestly, this picture was was something that kind of kickstarted the whole book idea. This was before I knew about Ed's headstone. I hadn't checked on Ed headstone or since he passed away. I you know, I got the news when I was doing an interview in Atlanta and I was sad and that was that. I mean, I just moved on. So in the book, you'll see this picture of, of Ed and I. And that's what rock people do, you know. I'm in Paris. I go by Jim Morrison's grave. I go, you know, it's just what we do. Well, holy fucking shit. I was like, you got to be kidding me. That's not, there's nothing there for people to go to. And you're going to tell me people aren't going to see Ed when they get the chance. Right. So I just got a little bit, not obsessed, but I was like, fuck, that's not right. And then I started thinking, well, why the fuck hasn't someone from the band who played with them much longer than I did done something about this by now? You know what I mean? Cause you immediately say, this isn't for me to do. Why the fuck hasn't somebody else that worked with Ed much longer than me fucking handle this shit? And then I was like, well, that's not how life works, right? When you're a person who who puts time into themselves, you've got the responsibility and knowledge. And if I'm not the problem, there's no solution. Meaning there's not a problem because I'm the solution. Or I'm the solution because I'm also the problem. So Ed's headstone's a fucking problem as far as I'm concerned. So I'm now the fucking solution. So... What I would like to say on this podcast is we are trying to get this solved. So here's the problem. We can't, we're having a hard time finding Eddie's family. I have someone who's been knocking on his mom's or what we think is his mom's house's door. Eddie's father apparently passed away. We don't know how much English they speak and no one can find his mom. So I've formed the Eddie army and Eddie we trust and I will next week, I'm putting together a Zoom call and I'm going to actually ask you guys, I'm going to put both of you right fucking on the spot now. It's not enough to run the fucking podcast. 
I need your help with the Eddie Headstone project. I'm going to ask you guys to help me with the Zoom call, getting the people together. So here's what we have. We have someone knock on his door now. We have a, a fan who has reached out to me who makes stone monuments for a living. Fantastic. He'll make Eddie a stone monument. He'll do it for a, a, you know, a reasonable price. I'm happy to use funds from the book to pay for the headstone. You know, it's just all what I mean by that rhythm of life is as this is unfolding, it's like, oh, now I know why we're doing the Ed book, right? It's just we're just going down this path of honoring Ed. So what I'm hoping is you two gentlemen would uh, join our little Eddie Army thing here and help. I'm specifically asking you guys to help from the administrative side as far as just setting up the Zoom call, getting these everybody grouped together to do the call. I need everybody to get face to face on a Zoom so I can hold everyone accountable and myself and just get all all the bright minds that we have here circle the wagons and go okay what do we got what are the facts okay what's possible and then how do we take next steps i can honestly i could speak for myself and for david would be more than more than happy and more than honored to to join you in that i think it would be a cool thing too for people to get the chance to ride along on this whole process yeah well i looked for his family like i told you um Last year, we did an entire Ed tribute episode, had, you know, different people on talking about him. And I had reached out to some people because I wanted his family to hear it because I think it's it's the best thing creatively that Ian and I have ever done. I don't know if anything will, will, will ever touch it. You know, I had numerous people text me, goes, dude, I'm at work and I'm having to stand in the corner because I'm crying. Uh, and it, it moved a lot of people. And I wanted his family to hear it. Right. I tried reaching out, trying to find anybody that would know. And kind of like you hit a dead end street most of the time. So I, I think between the people, you know, the people, this podcast reach, hopefully we can find the right person to put us in touch. Yeah. You know what I think's weird? Ed was very, um, he was very private about his family. I don't remember his family being like, I have a hard time. Like even feel like I've met his mom once. I mean, which is a weird thing that there's little around, but I, I want you to think about what you just said to me. You did a tribute to, let's just go through this real quick. Let's just call it as we see it. Let's Monday morning quarterback this fucker. <laughs> so what you just said to me was this, and you tell me if I hear if I, what I heard was wrong, please. Okay. You guys poured your soul into an Eddie thing, and that's where that ended. So here's what I'm saying. My comment that I'm about to make here, it's about a culture and an environment that makes that behavior fucking okay. You understand what I'm saying to you? You said to me, hey, listen, I poured myself into Ed. Ed was my band member. Ed passes away. I know there's problems, but you're trying to get in touch with his family, and that's where that ends? When there's only a couple of people who might have the power to get in touch with Ed's family? I mean, listen, let's let's call, let's talk about this. Who's going to fucking actually have – who's going to know how to get in touch with Ed's family? you got to assume it's somebody in the band first or management or something. A fucking paycheck had to go somewhere to a bank account to a parent. And you're telling me that when Ed left the band or was fired from the band or it doesn't fucking matter to me. But at some point, a guy who's strung out, who you're getting reports of fucking floating around Toronto, nobody decided nobody went to visit him. Nobody thought they should go back and check on their brother. I didn't. And. I don't feel shame about that, but I'm certainly not absolved of my responsibility, even though Ed and I fucking didn't talk for fucking 20 years. I'm a guy who understands addiction and problems. Nobody, nobody from that organization 
I find that I don't know that they did. I don't know. I don't know the facts. Maybe they all did. Maybe everybody tried to find it. Maybe they tried to get him in rehabs. I don't know the story. So I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. I'm saying actions speak, period. All I know is I'm out of the picture for fucking two decades. I find some photos of Ed, want to celebrate the guy a bit because he was a great part of my life. I want to take ownership of that back. Now I find out the fucking guy doesn't have a decent headstone. And he's wandering around Toronto. I mean, does everybody in the organization really, did they all really do everything they were supposed to do for their brother? Can everybody go to sleep saying, yeah, man, we did it. We did everything we fucking could for Eddie. I mean, at the end of the day, people make music for each other. And what else do you fucking have other than each other? And how many people in your life, when you have something like the Crows or Skinnerd or anything, you don't have to just be in a band, anything. Anything that's amazing and important to you, the birth of your children, what, you know, who can you share that with? Well, mo- a lot of us are parents. We can share that with each other. But if you have an experience like you were in fucking Vietnam and you happen to be a fucking long range patrol lurk guy behind the scene, how many fucking people do you think you can talk to about your experience? They have to be a person. That, and I'm not comparing our experiences to Nam. I'm just trying to make a point. I'm just saying it's a very niche group of people. It's a bonding experience. Right. So you're going to tell me we went through all this and it, when it's all fucking said and done, that everyone's just going to fucking wander off on their own, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what that, my friend, is, is a statement about people's fucking character. This isn't a conversation of my opinion. That's a fucking fact. The behaviors speak for themselves. The results are the only thing that fuck, the results are the fucking results. So now we're running around going, holy shit. Did no one fucking keep up with anybody in Ed's world? And how do we fucking find his family so that we can get him a respectable fucking headstone? It just seems fucking ridiculous to me. From a human being standpoint, are you fucking kidding me? What's so fucking important? Or what fucking happened that was Eddie Harsh, the guy that everybody unanimously says is a fucking great guy. What happened between you and him that was so shitty that he doesn't deserve love in the 11th hour of his fucking life bullshit i would i would 100 percent agree you know look i know i'm getting heavy about it but it's fucking real it absolutely is and by the way we're discussing things with people who love to dish it out oh they love to fucking talk about it and they love to fucking run their mouth about it and they love to say what's going to fucking happen that's fine whatever man i'm not judging that that's your trip do your thing all i know is ed spent the end of his life to the best of my knowledge, sick. Addiction's a fucking illness, man. Everybody, you know, just because he just because he had a, a, an addiction to opioids, which eventually is what took the guy down. I don't know what exactly happened, but we all know it stems from a fucking life hard lived. My point is this: Would you feel differently if he fucking got MS? You goddamn right you would. So the stigma around that shit, even inside what's supposed to be his family. I call bullshit on all that. I don't give a shit if he couldn't play and he just stopped showing up for gigs. If he couldn't play and stopped showing up for gigs because he had cancer, would it would it look like this? No, it fucking wouldn't. So here we go. And then here I go. You know, I'm just getting fucking wound up and I'm I'm turning it's happening again. It's my weakness. I'm becoming self-righteous. So what you're seeing out of me right now is a guy who's trying to call it as he sees it, but I can't stop putting a dog in the fight. And that dog in the fight's my ego. And what I'm trying to tell you now is I would have done it better. I would have done it different. And you know what? I can't say that. That's not true. 
So let me say this as a disclaimer. It's painful. I feel fear. I don't want to die alone, nobody caring, and I don't want Ed to have gone through that shit. And it's scary. And fear makes me get angry. That's my response to it. And it makes me get self-righteous and wound up. Oh, look, look, I make the good decisions. Everybody else makes the bad ones. Look how well I've done. You know, that's not what I'm trying to say. However, I'm not going to pull any fucking punches about the scorecard here. So I know there's a lot of people. And what I'm realizing is there's a lot more people than I knew I had any idea. Understand what Ed contributed to their life in real time, pound for pound, even if some of the people closest to Ed really don't get how important Ed was. So when you're meeting people in the middle, I'm allowing the people that are talking to me about Ed to educate me about Ed and what Ed means to them. So let's do something for them. Ed's gone. And I didn't do anything for fucking Ed. Now this isn't even about Ed. This is about Ed's legacy and the relationship Ed's continuing to have with people and giving people something to go and visit and pilgrimage to, to be able to celebrate a great fucking human with great fucking talent who, like all of us, had a fucking flaw, an addiction. And I'm being honest, right? And I'm, I'm not being in, inauthentic. And I'm, 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 if I'm going to be real, I'm going to be somewhat unhinged because that's the person that I am. And I'm still making points. Hey, look, I'm, I know I'm out of line here. And I know I trust you guys 100% that you're not going to take that part out, right? You're not going to sensationalize me or fuck with me like normal press would. That's why I won't do anything. And this is why I don't go on. I would rather just make the Ed, in theory, I'd rather just make the Ed fucking book and put my money where my mouth is and let my actions speak for themselves. But you guys are awesome. I appreciate the support and keeping part of my fucking career alive, which is what you guys single-handedly do. I love it. I respect it. And regardless of how I feel about me, because even what I just said is very ego, very self-centered. I'm going to be worried about how I came off. You know what I mean? Like, really. But if I'm not honest about that, too, then, you know, you got to know, like, if anything's good, it's just that I've been able to gain enough self-awareness to realize how fucking off kilter I, I, I am throughout the day. And, you know, I keep making it about me. I can't help it. But the only thing that keeps me motoring in the right direction day after day after day with consistency is to know that about myself and face it every fucking, not just every day, dude. Sometimes I got to face this shit on a, like three or four times a day. I got to sit down with myself and do my meditation and be like, what the fuck? I need mine, right? So with Ed, I'm very excited. I know you guys, you know, will do me right on this end of it and give me the time to really talk and give me the time to, you know, express it. And if anybody out there has got the fucking stamina to make it through my fucking craziness, you know, to hear what the fuck I'm trying to say, thank you. You're fucking, you have way too much time on your hands. You probably should get a fucking life, but I appreciate you hanging with me. So I'm going to give you a quick summary. Ed's book is, let me share with everybody, everybody pre-order. Ed's book is going off to China to be printed. Holy shit, that's a crazy process. Shipping is really <laughs> weird. I, I've running into one delay after another. You're going to have to be patient and bear with us. They shut the factories down for 10 or 12 days for Chinese New Year. Who fucking knew that? There's two <laughs> weeks put onto the book returning. And I don't know when it's coming back. But 
It's going to be awesome. And we're going to do, I've got some special things planned and I want to drop those here. When the book comes back and people have copies in their hands, I've got an event or two planned that I think we can all participate in that I think will be super cool. Two, if you care about Ed's headstone issue and there's no guilt involved here, if you feel like you have something to add to that process, uh, the Amorica guys and I are going to have a uh, Zoom call and I'll try not to give any speeches and we'll get to the bottom of trying to figure out how to get Ed his headstone. So please send me a message or send the podcast a message uh, letting us know kind of like, hey, I'd love to help and here's maybe how I can help. Uh, and we'll make that call. Does that sound good? It sounds sounds great. And, and I'll tell you what is even better was uh, this morning we found out as we record this, you released your Patreon pages. And uh, Ian and I, right before you joined the call, both got an email from you saying we're part of the original, That's original right. group. So here's another, you know, you know who Richard Lewis is? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Do you guys, do you guys watch Larry David at all? Uh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. All right, so I I made the mistake recently of going back and, and watching Larry David's first season, and I've never been able to watch the show consistently because it freaks me out. Like I'm stressed while I'm watching it. My wife's like, "Could just relax? It's okay. It's not real life." I'm like, "No, it's fucking real life." And then I realize when I go out into the street, you know, I feel like everything that happens to me is like a Larry David episode, right? I packaged something for someone specific today who's been a huge supporter of mine, and I made him a special print and I put it in a box and I drew a thank you on the box and I signed it. And I just wanted it to be this nice, sweet thing. I go in the UPS office and I hand the box over and this woman who's, you know, she seems like a school teacher, right? She's making me crazy from the get go. I'm just like, I tell her like, Hey, you know, you don't have to ask me any of those questions. The answer is yes, whatever it costs. It's all good. And she's like, no, that's not how it works. I got it. <laughs> she takes, and I, I know she hates me and she takes the sticker for the UPS box and she puts it right over my signature. <laughs> oh man. I know she did that on purpose. You know, <laughs> thing is, that's what Larry David does to me. It really, it's like, so my point is this, I'm going to say this and I'm sorry, I'm going to sound like Richard Lewis, but I was very self-conscious of the idea of Patreon. So I just don't think of myself that way. And I follow a number of people on Patreon and I fucking love it. There's these artists that I follow. It's just like being fucking friends with them. It's killer. Like I, they show me how they work and they give me their brush sets and they do all this cool shit. And I'm like, this is really cool. And I really like the quality of the interaction. I thought, okay, hang on a second. I like social media, as I said, but I want, an, I want two things. I want a higher signal to noise ratio. I want a more personal relationship that's vetted to some degree. So I'm not just getting any sort of flyer person because I've had some problems. In the last few months, they've been dramatic problems. I need a safe place to be able to be with people. Furthermore, the response to the Ed book has shown me how many people really do care about this era of the crows. And if I want to share about that stuff, I need to be in an extra safe environment. So I'm not willing to just throw this stuff out into the ether. And I'm not going to go make a big book. And I'm just, I'm not going to follow any traditional path. So I started the Patreon because I believe it's the best platform to create the highest quality connection as people around creativity. And I certainly did not want to do a crow specific thing at all. But once I started laying out, I realized with Patreon, you you know, with the tier system, because I was only going to do one tier. I was just going to make like a, hey, everybody just join the low, the first tier and we'll be fine. We'll all hang out together. And then I got kind of some advice that was like, that's not cool. And 
I realized I had the capacity to create a crow tier. I was very reluctant to do that. But then I realized my reluctance to do that's about me, not about what other people might want to interface with me or about a part of my career. Right. All my shit is like being self-conscious about me. Oh, that's not cool. Or I'm going to look weird or, you know what I mean? Like it's just all garbage. And I was just like, okay, I'm just going to take all that fucking garbage and just sort of like move it to the side and take the risk and have the courage to go out. So the Patreon works like this. If you don't know about it, there's tiers and you can sign up by the month and thing and participate and all that. There's a very specific crow tier. I'm going to treat the crow tier a very specific way. Now, the people in the second tier, which is the front row people, they're going to get some crow stuff. But the crow tier is going to give you some really deep stuff, but it's also kind of private. So the amount of people are limited. It's not just a wide open fucking tier program. But on top of that program, what I wanted to show the the first 13 people that signed up, because I love 13 and a baker's dozen. I was like, okay, I'm going to, regardless of tier level, right? So the 13 people that have signed up are in all different tiers. So I decided let's add even more value. The first 13 have their own nickname and you guys all have my personal phone number and we have a, I'm going to put together a text message group. So even if you're in the small tier, the big tier, whatever tier, doesn't matter. There's a unilateral sort of separate, super secret tier within the little group, right? And then we'll get in more people and we'll make another one and we'll do weird shit. And we're going to have to have like our Patreon birthday and all 13 of us will do something on Zoom. It's weird shit. I don't know. Maybe I just got too much time on my hands, guys. But it's like, you know what I'm saying? But I'm just, look, I don't know what to tell you guys. Look, here's the deal. I work all day and all night. I live in a very small place. It's very quiet. It's very fucking dark at night. I got a beach. The environment has no noise. It just feeds me like a battery. And I have no fucking distractions. And I can create and I can use these platforms to connect with people. And frankly, my connections on here feel, they don't supersede in-person connections. Don't get me wrong, but they're very high quality. Well, I, I was excited to see that email this morning. And I uh, was excited to see the one we got from you right before we came on. Like I said, I know Ian and I are in it. I've already spoken to several other people that are part of it. And you can get the same information on page for Patreon as you can on your Instagram page. If you go to the Instagram, you can, there's a, li- a link tree. Cause that's how savvy I am. I've got my own link tree. Now. <laughs> you go to link tree, it's so rad, right? You go to link tree and there's a Patreon thing there and you can join. So the net, okay. So anyone who hears the first 10 people hearing this podcast, who sign up for Patreon, I don't care what tier you sign up for, I'm going to send you a special print. An 11 by 17, full-on illustration. It's going to be super rad. You're going to be like, fuck yeah, that's sick, right? <laughs> only 10, and there's only going to be 10, and they're going to be personalized. It's going to be fucking cool, and we'll get this thing started. I want to tell you about something else I did real quick. Okay, your thing. I had a really great moment. I kind of just want to share this because it's super cool. This is how cool my life is now. I'm at Gaffrey Art Material and, you know, we make colors and, and things that are all very, very specific to uh, Justin Gaffrey's palette. It's his company. He's an amazing artist, an amazing fucking guy. So we have a, the paint maker. He's like the engineer, right? If, uh, like he's like be the engineer at a record, making a record, right? He's that guy. He's like the technical guy, right? So Neil makes the paint. Like he's actually the chemist, right? Fucking mad scientist guy. Looks just like <laughs> Jeff Rogan. It's incredible. Um, <laughs> which is funny because Justin Gaffrey looks just like um woody harrelson so i literally it's like woody everybody you know when we're live everyone's like he looks like woody harrelson so it's like i got seth rogan and woody harrelson at work and um 
Oh, by the way, on my, if you go to my Instagram link, if you like art and you want to try art supplies, you get a, if you use my code, you get 10% off everything at Gaffrey Art Material. Let me just get that plug in real quick because those guys are awesome over there. They really, it's amazing product. I love it. So Neil made a batch of paint and as he was making it, he knew it was getting off like the green, like we knew we were like the pigment was just getting off. And I said, wait, 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 this is looking like there's this Porsche color. It's called, I think it's called Irish green. It's in the mid sixties. They may have, I'm not exactly sure if that's the technical German Porsche name for it, but I think Irish green is the color. Can we add a little bit more pigment? Can you get me in? I've got, I pulled up a 1965 Porsche 912. I'm like, can you get this color? Right. And then I was like, can we add silver metal flake paint? Now I know everybody hears, cares about music in this podcast, but this is just so creative, right? So I was like, but can we put silver paint in it? Metal flake, but not like car metal flake. Like, can you give me a small metal flake, like a luminescence, but I don't want it to look like a lady pearlized kind. I mean, like I want the paint to look like, you know, how paint around a car changes with the light. You know, I fucking believe this, man. Neil just knocked it out. He made this incredible paint. So I go live and we're showing people while we're making it. Right. And I'm like, oh my God, I want to have a special paint. I want to have a limited edition paint, just like a piece of art. I was like, Neil, how much of this paint do we have? He's like, we only have two gallons. I'm like, that's what is that? Like 38 ounce jars? I go, so I'm going to have 38 ounce jars of this paint. They're going to be hand numbered, hand lettered, just like a print, right? Just like artwork. Like you can have the jar of paint. So I'm talking to Instagram. So we start trying to figure out a name for it. And uh, there's a guy that follows me named Jeff underscore midnight. Uh, he's been very helpful. He's the guy who's got somebody knocking on Ed's parents' door. He's a great guy. Gotcha. Um, everyone's throwing out names and he's, He's like Phil Linnett Green. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean Phil Linnett Green? Like Phil Linnett from Thin Lizzy. Right. And I'm like, I love Phil Linnett, but why is it? And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Bass playing black Irishman. <laughs> Holy shit, that's genius. So here's what's happening. 30 jars of Phil Linnett Irish Green. Fucking sick. Now listen, this is where it gets better. I'm going to do a print. I'm going to do an illustration and make a print of Phil Linnett. It's going to be rad. And, you know, maybe 10 of the jars come with the print. But here's the other part. I was already like, oh, wait a minute. Fuck no. Here's what we're going to do. So the eight ounce jars of the paint are limited. But we're going to modify the paint slightly and go into production. So here's what's going to happen. The next paint is going to be uh, less clay pool lemon. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm making four colors that are inspired by a combination of my favorite Porsche and my favorite bass player. There's going to be four in the set. You can only get the exclusive 30 jars direct from me, but then there's going to be a four two-ounce jar package that they're going to process. It's going to be anyone can get at Gaffrey Art Material, all after bass players. So, which now I'm having another idea. Hold on, fucking stop it. Hang on a second. How many bass players have there been in the Crows? Oh, man. You, Sven, Andy Hess. Greg Rezab. So, Sven... I mean, no disrespect to any of the other bass players. Sven's been there a long time. Sven, we can do a Sven color. He's from Germany. You can tie that in. There you go. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. Okay, hang on, hang on, hold on. How great would this be? How great is it if I produce a fucking color for the other Crow bass player? That's (laughs) That's, fucking rad. Hang on a second. So hold on, let's do this right now. Let's do this on the air. That's diplomacy, man. You guys got to help me. Okay, so Sven's German, which means... Porsche's in his blood, right? We're just going to totally, we're generalizing pretty hard here. Don't cancel me. 
I just like fortune <laughs> and I like bass players. What do you don't cancel me? Okay, so hold on. So we got spin, we got a pour. So let's think about spin for a second. We have to think about two things. And I'm not gonna know. I mean, I know some things about spin. They're positive. It's pretty enlightened and and and, and good dude from everything I know about him. So the question is twofold. What color is spin? And second, we're gonna do the um Jerry Seinfeld, comedians getting cars thing, uh, his show, right? Where they, he picks right. a car for someone. So the question is, which Porsche is Schmidt? Hmm. Let's make it easier here, right? Let's go to the color first. What color do you guys think when you think of Sven? Bluish green. Yes, I have to agree. Wow, really? Now, when you say bluish green, do you mean like an, just bear with me here. We'll get this figured out. Do you mean like an, like an aqua color? Or which is more blue, or do you, or do you mean like a teal color, which is more green? I would go with aqua because Finn's so down to earth, and that's yeah. more more natural. He's, saying he's, he's down to earth, but he's kind of fluid, like a water element. Which means, are you ready for this? If we decide that Sven, when Sven's birthday, do we know his? Do we know his astrological sign? Well, here's how we're going to figure out what kind of Porsche he is. If Sven is a water element, you know, he's blue, he's grounded, but he's blue. That's a really, you know, it's a fluid. He, he plays pretty fluid too. So, you know, I could see the water component. That means that the motor type of the Porsche, right? And air cooled, you know, the type of motor would be affected by him being a water element. So maybe he needs to be a fuel injected Porsche. Maybe he might be an outlaw Porsche. Maybe, you know what I'm saying? Like we're going to find these spiritual components, if you energetic components and we'll match them to the Porsche. He was born May 30th, by the way. So that means he's a fucking Gemini. Mm. You know you know what that means? That means he's, you, you know, Gemini's the twins, like the split personality. So he's got, there's, so what I'm saying is if we see Sven as this water-cooled sort of fluid thing, then his counterpart, some part of him is going to be like hard fucking fire. Like that's just the opposite, right? Gotcha. So that's all I need. So here's what we're going to do. I want you guys to allow me to call in a report on the spin paint. Absolutely. So I don't want to interrupt anybody else's podcast. I just want you to do, I want to have an update, like a news segment where you get an update. Like we're going <laughs> to gonna go to Johnny on the report for the thing. And um, Hey, wouldn't be, the, wouldn't be the first time you've given a report. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can do a stand up for you guys. It'd be great. And then um, let's do one more thing. You know, it costs money to produce a podcast. I know you guys are in service to people. You do charity work. What about doing, what if we team up and do something specific art-wise for the podcast itself? So That'd be fantastic. I'm happy, do, I'm happy to do the 10 images for the Patreon customers, but let's talk about what we could do with the podcast. So, well, probably what would be appropriate is for me to, maybe there's an image in, in my, the photographs that we could literally run a, a very limited print of that, that supports you guys. And that you could sell or whatever you wanted. You could give it away. Whatever you guys want to do with it. We do it as a giveaway. Yeah, we're big on giving away. <laughs> so what would be cool is maybe there's an image that we could, um, you know, like print 20 of or 20, maybe a 25 print run and give it away. You And I'll give it to you guys and you can give it away. Johnny, 15-year-old David is sitting here going, one day Johnny Colt was going to be printing something for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to fanboy too much, but that's pretty freaking cool, man. Yeah, I think it'd be great. I mean, the podcast's awesome, and why not have something that only the people that, you know, the only people following the podcast can have because 
that's what makes all this really cool, right? It just makes it fun, man. It's like, wow, you know, and, and you've got, I'm sure you have whatever number you want to do. We can talk about that, you know, but whatever number, but, it, you know, it could be 15, 25, we could do 35, but whatever you want to do to your fans, I'm sure you have a certain number that are, that are just core diehard people. Let's, yep. let's give them some love. I mean, again, at the end of the day, their, their dedication to the podcast is, is nothing but supportive, obviously of me. You know what I mean? It all just, I win in all this shit. By the way. <laughs> I can't lose. I, you know what? I should have come on earlier because now I realize I can't fucking lose. I can paint Sven or make paint of Sven and I can give fucking pictures away to people who love it and people can come to Patreon. I'll tell you some fucking stories. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you this. I just put this up on Patreon. Very, very first time the Black Crows played the Fox Theater in Atlanta. Opening for Raging Slab and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Wow. I had no fucking idea these photos existed. Let me explain something. One of the things I'm going to do on Patreon is this. I found a bag of fucking rolls of film that are 30 years old. I didn't think any of them would survive. There's amazing shit in there, but the quality of the negatives is very poor. Meaning this, I couldn't publish those. I don't think these negs will hold up to printing. And I don't want people to pay directly for a book that's like so inferior and you don't want to look at a bunch of low quality pictures in a row. Like you might be able to tolerate one or two in the space of good photos because it, it's an amazing moment or it tells a story. It's just hard to look at a lot of inferior content at one time. But I really feel like people should see these pictures. I mean, there's pictures of us in Japan that I it's just shit that I didn't know is like, oh my God, that exists. Cool. So I think the Lost Crow photos is what I'm calling them. I'm going to start, I'll run those across Patreon. I think that's the right place for those. That's what that crow tier is really about. Yeah, man. And anyone who joins now or goes over, you can see, I, I don't know what this stuff looks like to fans. They're, the, sh- the shots aren't high quality. It's, it's shot with film and you're in the Fox and it's dark and everything's a little blurry, but. I think it's the, the subject that matters the most. I just, I don't, yeah, I don't know. So I, what I like about Patreon is I don't feel inner sort of risk or like I'm being over presumptuous or I'm underappreciating what people want. Cause I don't know what people actually want. I really don't. What's cool about Patreon is, you know, I can just feed it up. You know what I mean? And you can take what you want and not, you don't have to spend X amount of dollars on a book that will publisher and then you, or, or, or I self publish and then you have to buy it. And then you look at it and you're like, okay, well, I didn't really want that part. I really wanted this part. You know what I mean? So right. I, this is what I like about the platform is I can consistently deliver content and also the other thing about you when you get a book and i'm going to do i'm going to do these limited edition things i'm going to do more of them but the thing is you know on patreon we have a direct dialogue i mean you have the you know you're on the tier you people leave comments i'm i answer the comments so we can actually get a nice discussion going about what you see and the things that people respond to i'm happy to talk about instead of me writing a whole bunch of shit about something that I think might be important, or I think you might think is important. The world doesn't work like that anymore. Or it doesn't have to, I can put the stuff up and then you can come to me and go, dude, I need to know more about that. Right. And then I can respond to you, right? That's that meeting in the middle thing. All right, Johnny. So be careful what you ask for. You asked us to get some listener submitted questions to you. Oh shit. I forgot about this part. Go. <laughs> All right. Got one and watch me in air quotes now. Steve G from Nashville sent me this one. Who's the best drummer you've ever played with? And what is it about Steve G that separates him from the rest? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
first off, he's he is correct uh, to say um, that it's that Steve G. It's funny that Steve G knows that Steve G's the best drummer. But, <laughs> <laughs> by the way, if you know Steve G, Steve G secretly thinks he's the best at just about everything. So keeping <laughs> with the spirit. And what is it about? I'll tell you. Um, let me just think real quick through drummers. Yeah, no, yeah, it's definitely Steve. As a matter of fact, Steve, it's interesting in the drummer department. I don't know that there's a close fucking second. I'm just really qu- quickly trying to think of anybody I ever sat in with on a freak of moment. But you know, yeah, no, I gotta, I gotta, I will give it to Steve Gorman hands down. That um, yeah, there's no, there's no second. I mean, he doesn't really have a contemporary. I mean, I have a hard time with the idea that you know, it's one thing to leave the band. It always made sense. The band always made sense to me when Steve's in the band. I do struggle a little bit, just even in my own head, conceptually. It's the same thing with the Stones, like Charlie Watts isn't up there. I'm not sure why that's continuing to happen, but that's a different discussion for a different time. So yes, the answer is definitely, it is Steve. And uh, I'm sure he feels really, uh, he already knows he's the greatest. So I don't (laughs) think this is going to come as a shock. What do I love about him? Um, you know, what I love is that Steve pointed out to me where his greatest moment, <laughs> um, which if I'm not mistaken, according to Steve is the song uh, is the demo of the song exit. I think Steve's opinion is that that's him and I at our finest. Here's what I'm going to say about Steve and Steve's greatness. I'm going to make this statement knowing that when I do, I'm standing on the shoulder of a giant and that giant's Steve. When Steve and I play together, no one can fucking touch us, period, plain and simple. And no combination, therefore, has touched that. Now, am I saying I'm a better bass player than Flea? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when Steve and I go to work doing what we need to do for the band, we do what great rhythm sections do, and we fucking deliver. And it's all right there, and I put, in, I put any combination thereof up against it. And the crazy thing is the response, what matters to people, it backs up that statement. So when I say that, I really don't mean it as egotistical as it sounds. I mean it from a, let's just let the work speak for itself. All right. Let's see here. Kate from Connecticut wants to know, what happened to those blue boots you wore during the Jealous Again video? (laughs) Well, Kate, it's funny that you mentioned those. Um, They were made by John Flubog. No, Trash and Vaudeville. They were Trash and Vaudeville boots. Uh, they were a huge hit. I, I, who would have known that blue patent leather would go as far as it did? Kate, I think those shoes are a metaphor for the fact that a person can coast pretty far on charm in life. And that's kind of how I've gotten by. Those boots were stored for a long time. And I want to say that they exist somewhere. But again, I'm not a guy who would spend much time trying to save his clothes. I just didn't think it would. I'm sure I didn't think it was important at any given time. (laughs) Most of what I own doesn't exist. So, Kate, I I do not have them bronzed is what you're asking. And I should (laughs) have. If I would have, if I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, I would have literally had them sent to the hard rock. All right. Way Out West, who's on one of the Black Crows message boards, wanted me to ask you about your tone on the early stuff. Now, I'm not a musician. So uh, he said that, your tone was pretty bright and aggressive, kind of int whistle style. Was that how you liked to play or was it a suggestion to help you cut through that wall of guitars? Okay, out west. If you say bright, I'm going to assume that you're not talking about the first Crows record. I'm going to, because that's not bright. The first record was mixed by Brendan in a studio 
And there was a lot of arguments over the fact that the record didn't have enough bass and George was upset about it at one point. But at the end of the day, whatever they did was right. Because it's fucking Shake Your Moneymaker. Yeah, so I'm saying Southern Harmony. Yeah, so it wasn't bright to, it was just bright and aggressive because that's just where we were at. I learned with time, since he's a bass player, let me say something technical. So with time, what I learned was to not use those kind of tones to try to cut through and to go underneath and play with much, much, much deeper, darker bass sounds, but use a lot of presence on the bass to drive the sound to sound more like a horn instead of like a, you know, metallic sounding bass. Now the bass sound on Southern Harmony is fucking fantastic. And I can't really, honestly, other than the performance part, I'm not going to take credit for the amazing work that Brendan O'Brien did. I mean, you know, without Brendan, I'm sure I wouldn't have arrived at a sound that good. And Jack Puig was great because the Amorica bass sounds are fucking stellar, but if you just listen to the band Free and listen to Andy Fraser play, you find that the power of the instrument is really in the low end. And when you have two guitars, Skinner, I learned a lot because I had three fucking guitars and a keyboard player, you know, and that was an area where you had, you wanted to go under, right? Not right. into. So I hope that answers Way Out West question. And Way Out West, by the way, if you, if you really need super technical, nerdy talk, we can do it offline. You can just send me a DM and I'll try to help. I got a question from Joe in New York. He wanted to know what was your single most shining moment during your time in the Black Crows? Your most your most memorable moment. Ooh, wow. That's uh man, it's hard to to get it down to a uh, a moment. Uh let me share a few moments. Uh in a shitty fucking motel, six of us to a room, the first time we saw ourselves on MTV. I'm from that age and generation. I grew up with MTV. The first time I saw myself on MTV, I was like, holy fuck. Um, <laughs> he, uh, you know, um, the cover of Rolling Stone. It's got to be up there. I mean, holy shit. That was another just like, I can't. Are you fucking kidding me? This is happening. Um, the Southern Harmony debuting at number one. That was mind fucking blowing, frankly. I mean, I knew we were doing quite well at the moment but i just i didn't know we had that much fucking velocity it was just like holy shit we have a number one record wow but the rolling stones more like a number one record's cool but like the rolling stone you like you're seeing yourself right your ego you know your mind sees your pictures on rolling stone it's just like what that's supposed to be joe perry or keith richards not you know right. or, or into a soul or what it's not supposed to be me <laughs> you know those are huge um man the show in moscow you know, that, that show, you know, that's on film and us in Moscow was fucking insane. That whole experience was just beyond fucking crazy. I'm kind of leaving out musical studio moments. Okay. Just so you know, there's plenty of those, but I'm, I'm not doing that. That's a little more esoteric, like recording certain songs or a certain feeling in the room. Let's just, that'll get a little hocus pocusy. Uh, let's point to things that are more sort of material First day we got a tour bus? Are you kidding? Like fucking, I've been waiting. My, I've been fucking daydreaming about being on a tour bus since I was like 13. So <laughs> that was a big deal. It pulled up. We were like, what? Um, <laughs> you know, the tour bus was amazing. So, um, and then, you know, you know, you're you're Brazil and you're playing with the cure and you're on a stadium show and you're you're, you know, European travel. And I grew up as a small child in Japan. So playing the Sundome in Tokyo was massive for me. That was big. And 
musically, you know, playing with uh, Jimmy Page and Ron Wood. And, oh, I'll tell you a fucking great moment because I'm starting to spiral off. I'm not going to beat those. Moments. I mean, there, there's other ones, but let me tell you, uh, uh, let me tell you really what you're asking. What's my best moment? Now, now let me just tell you an amazing moment, a more surreal moment. Okay. We're opening for Robert Plant now in Zen Tour. We, I think Robert was, we had a day off and I think Robert had been at the hotel bar drinking with because Robert Plant's super fucking cool, man. I mean, <laughs> Robert Plant's the coolest, most down to earth guy. I know it sounds crazy. Golden God, the whole deal. He's fucking, I mean, trust me, he's Robert all fucking days. You're literally in the presence of fucking greatness, but he's super cool. We called him Uncle Bob and <laughs> he was really good to us. So anyways, Robert really inspired me because he was who he like he said this to me, like, I don't know if my lyrics were great. I just, cause I was asking him some questions about dancing days, lyrics being a big dork, you know, and, uh, <laughs> I didn't understand something. I was asking him a question and he, he said, you know, I don't know if my lyrics are the best, but I just tried to show people all the things I was seeing, the adventure that I was experiencing, which is how I felt. But Robert would literally play a show and then get in a rent a car with someone and drive to Indian mounds. Like the guy was a tourist. Like he just was going to see everything. That was really inspiring to me, which led to partially fueled Ed and I sort of, you know, to bring full circle back to Ed, like, well, it, it informed us. So one day, I don't know, I, I probably slept like three hours. I get up, it's the sun's just coming up and I wake up in my bunk and I step off the tour bus and I'm standing there like I'm, I'm wearing leather pants and no shoes. I probably don't even have a shirt on. I'm just standing in the parking lot. We're like in Arizona. It's warm, you know. And I'm just staring at the sun rising. And, and I see this little four-door normal car just come kind of like hauling ass across this massive parking lot. <laughs> I don't like, we're, we must be parked near a venue or something with this big parking. This fucking car comes racing across the parking lot and just pulls right up to the tour bus and stops. So I'm getting ready to fight. Like, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, you hear that? And it's fucking Robert Plant. <laughs> okay. You know, we have been drinking. I know I've been drinking heavy the night before, so I don't. I think I'm still probably drunk. And like, he pulls up, the window rolls down, and I see that his bass player Charlie is in the back seat. Who, I don't know if they're still married, but at one point was married to Robert's daughter. Charlie's a super nice guy. Robert goes, "You want to go for breakfast?" <laughs> you know what I just said? A car comes across a parking lot. My the window rolls down. Robert's wearing a blanket as a jacket and says, do you want to go to breakfast? <laughs> Get in. I'm like, fuck, yeah, I'm going to breakfast with Robert fucking plant. So, and you got to understand, man, Zeppelin and Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith are like at those, you know, physical graffiti is one of the soundtracks to my life records. You know what I mean? Just like Dark Side of the Moon, physical graffiti, first five Aerosmith records, you know, fucking we sold our soul for rock and roll. And it's just the basics, right? So I go put some clothes on. I jump in the car and we fucking go to Waffle House. <laughs> I'm sitting in a, you know how small those booths are. I'm sitting in a booth with Charlie to my left and fucking Robert Plant right in front of me. <laughs> sitting next to him. <laughs> so here's the thing. You know, people always like standing on stage. It must have been amazing. And yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Don't get me wrong. It's amazing. But it's just, it's a thing. It's its own kind of thing. It's amazing, but it's its different. The thing that is fucking amazing is fucking eating a waffle with fucking Robert Plant. Like, that's just sick. And he and Robert Plant just talking to you like, 
I mean, Robert Plant's a fucking seriously grown up man. I'm like 22 years old at the time. I'm a child. You know what I mean? And he's just <laughs> talking to me like another musician. The amount of respect Robert showed us was staggering, man. So I gotta say that that might really be, I mean, that's just an incredible moment. I mean, what the fuck? It definitely is surreal, like you said. <laughs> All right, Johnny, we've got two more for you. Tom Crantley asked, if the Crows were ever inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, would you attend? That's a great question. I don't know the I I, I don't know the answer to that. It's a great wow, what a great question. I guess I would be surprised if we were, but I'll say this. I don't know why I wouldn't. I mean, the work I'm part of would be the lion's share of why it's in there. So I don't know why I wouldn't. All right. So another question that I got, like probably 10 people asked me the same question. So I'm not going to attribute it to anybody. After Three Snakes, the band went in and recorded what, what came to be known as the band sessions. And which another roadside tragedy, Wyoming and me, a bunch of songs on there. And people want to know, what are your thoughts on that material? When you say that, what do you guys call those sessions? It's 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 called the band sessions. Steve said that all of that was done live in the studio. It was never a quote unquote officially released until like was 05. That, yeah. So was that a session done at a place called Purple Dragon? Right. That's the studio. Well, I haven't heard any of those songs since right around the time they were recorded, number one. I don't remember. I mean, those song titles sound vague. I don't know what Wyoming and me even is. Okay. So uh, I remember the sessions very clearly. We went into Purple Dragon to do some demos. And then some band members felt like the material was stronger than demos. And that maybe that was a record. And I feel like Steve says in his book or something that he felt like that was really good material. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. I'm going to say I wasn't very moved by it because one, I didn't stay in the band after those sessions and I don't really remember the music. What I remember was feeling like if I'm correct, that felt like a bunch of scratch demos to me and that a lot of songwriting needed to happen. But I felt that way about um, three snakes too. So this is my point about music though. It's all very subjective. So look, I did have fun playing those songs. I always had fun playing music. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not sitting there going, Wyoming me playing the song going, well, this song should be better. It's not like that. That's not how it works. You're not, it's it's hard to talk about this stuff and because re- you start revising history. You can't help it. I wasn't sitting there going, this is terrible. I don't want to be in this band anymore. That's not what was happening. We were playing and working things out and people were getting excited about it. I don't remember being that excited. That, that, that's all. And that doesn't mean that that makes it any less valid for the people that, that like it. I, I love that you love it. And I, I I played on it and I gave it everything I had when we were doing it. I never phoned anything in or again, it's not that it's not that simple. You know, everybody wants to reduce this is what's going on with everything. Like it's everybody wants to reduce everything to a fucking soundbite. It's either this or it's that it's, it's neither. You know, people is Chris Robinson, a bad guy. You know, there are many times that you could have been around me in my life. And if that's all you knew about me, you'd think I was a bad guy. For real. You know, it's not that fucking simple, you know, at all. And I reject the reduction of it. So my point is this. It's hard to give you an answer. That's And these are why my answers are so fucking long. <laughs> because 
if I were drawing, your my answers would be way shorter, by the way. <laughs> but I, I want to engage with you guys. So um, if anybody out there really, that really speaks to them, if I'm not mistaken, I think Steve, I don't want to fucking, I never want to misquote people. But I, what I remember from the book was Steve was saying that for him, it kind of reminded him of the early days before Shake Your Money Maker. I think mm -hmm. he's like, like to be in a fan of the replacements and sort of this weird alternative band, which by the way, those guys were very much that way before I joined the band. Now, let me make this clear just for, for, for coherence. Mm -hmm. We just talked about the records that matter to me. That's a lot more than that. And I like a lot of different styles and I, I'm not a one trick pony, but let's just get this straight. When I strap on and play, I'm ready to bring a fucking hammer. You know what I mean? So what I mean by that is, and when I say this again, there's no insult directed toward or judgment toward people who love these songs or Chris and Rich's songwriting. I don't expect songwriters to write the same fucking song over and over. That's not what I wanted from them. But if you take whatever Wyoming and me is and you compare it to, say, my morning song, then you might find that a guy who's very compelled when my morning song is forming between us and we record it and we perform it live you might see where that guy goes, huh, I'm not really sure I want to spend a ton of time playing a bunch of Wyoming and me. That's all that is. It doesn't mean Wyoming me isn't important. It's certainly important to far less people than my morning song. That's a different discussion. Does it mean it's less or more valid? Well, it does mean my morning song is more valid for me because that's what I thought made it special. That's what I came to do. That's what I thought I did well. So they want to go that way. It's their prerogative. Again, decisions all kind of stand the test of time. And man, hey, I got a whole bunch of guilty pleasures I like to listen to. And I like fucking Cure records that are unlistenable to most people. So we all uh, have those moments. Not, you know? not me. I love the Cure. Yeah, but I'm telling you, there's a couple of garbage tracks that I have a fucking secret love of that are just like, I'm just saying, like, we all have things we love and, and, and they speak to us. And, you know, I don't want to be told that I can't listen to What's that new age Irish lady in you? Don't tell me I can't listen to something. Don't tell me what I like is not valid. So I'm not telling you that Wyoming and me is not valid for you. I'm just trying to shed some light on why or where I'm coming from on that. So I got a story for you. Hold the fucking phone. I got a story for you. Check it out. You ready? Mm -hmm. I'm ready. Okay. Let me tell you what I remember about Purple Dragon. A lot of hip hop acts used to go down there and record there. The guy that owned it, uh, I had gone in and talked to and I, I set up the deal. We were in that studio trying a bunch of things. The idea was to go in, cut loose demos and try some things. I think Steve, I'm trying to get my head around what Steve was saying and connect the dots. Like, yeah, I think maybe it was like, hey, no label pressure, no pressure, just kind of do whatever you want to do. And probably for those guys, it was getting back. Like Steve says, it kind of felt like getting back to something they had before Mark Ford's, me's, whoever's playing the band at the time were there. We said we were going to go do demos. We got one price. Studios, if you say you're making a record, the price is different. Well, for the kind of studio owner that we were dealing with, the price is different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the whole thing was, I remember the band getting excited. And I remember saying, hey, listen, no matter how excited you get, don't fucking say the word record. <laughs> and of course, no one could control themselves. And I'm not going to name names. Somebody started saying record this. This could be the record. This could be the record. So the owner of the studio took the master tapes and put them in a cabinet and locked them away. So the Crow's manager called me and said, Hey, you know, those people, because the guy got upset. We weren't going to continue recording there. 
And we wanted the tapes that we had paid for to go off to do whatever they were going to do with them, possibly mix them or add recording. And the owner was like, fuck you. I want, you know, five times the money you just paid me or something. I don't know. I'm making that up. I don't know. That wasn't horrible. He's just a fucking studio owner just trying to get by. Right. So the manager called me and said, you need to get those tapes. Okay. Now keep in mind, there's a rap group that had just been down there and the engineer had been slightly pistol whipped by him and slightly held hostage briefly. (laughs) So this is Atlanta and it ain't a fucking game. You know what I'm saying? So he said, get the tapes. So I called the studio and the owner wasn't there, but the engineer was there. And I said, Hey, I got to grab those masters that we've got to overnight them to LA, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, did you talk to the owner? I said, no, I haven't talked to him. I'm just going to zip down. I'll grab them. I'll get them on the phone. I'll start it out. So I went to my neighbor who used to be in the Navy and I grabbed my Mitchell shotgun <laughs> and I went to the front door of the studio when the owner wasn't there to the engineer and said, you're going to give us our masters right fucking now. <laughs> and the guy handed me the tapes and I took them to FedEx the next day and sent them or handed them to somebody or something. I don't remember what happened. Maybe Pete sent somebody to give them. There you go. That's not in the book. I do want you to know that Unlike what we see a lot of today, the Black Crow's aggressiveness and and what could be serious darkness, which I I absolutely contributed to, make no mistake, I take 100% responsibility, is 100% was 100% very real. Uh, And I don't say that as a badge of honor. I say it as as something I've learned. (laughs) I've had to put work into learning how to manage, like I said, the aggressiveness, but in the day, man, you didn't fuck with us. I'm going to tell you right now. Like, listen, Chris and I could be fucking, you know, at the point where we couldn't fucking stand each other, but you couldn't fucking say anything about him. You know what I mean? I could fucking tell you he's a dick all day if I wanted to, which is not what I'm saying about him. But I had the right. But you fucking couldn't or you'd get your head fucking slammed. And that was real. And that was beautiful about us. You know, and I and I I I love that part of us. And that attitude can't live long without mutating into something kind of awful but while it's that band of brothers thing it's an amazing thing to be a part of what a great way to go out <laughs> well johnny first of all thank you so much for the music your contribution to that was not minimal and uh it was well received and well appreciated Two, it means the world to us that you agreed to come on here and that you trusted us to come on here and uh, we do not take that lightly well i appreciate what you're saying I have, again, I'm on here because I have such tremendous respect for what you guys do. And I appreciate your support. And I will say this. Now that I've come on here, you're beholden to me to now put into the vernacular with the Crow culture, this, this phrase, the Johnny Colt era. Let me explain why it's the Johnny Colt era. Because it's something that you just kind of commented on. Um, you know, I left the band and you've never heard me say a word about the band for 30 years. People can try to rewrite who did what all they want. And we know people do that. We all do. I just said I was doing it. I'm aware that I'm doing it. I work hard not to do it. So here's what I want to say. I dare you. I'll go that far. I dare you to negate the sentence I'm about to say. If we base it, our metric is the combination of records sold and what the general public considers success ballasted next to 
the music that had the most influence. Okay, that's our metric. From the day I joined the band until the day I leave the band, that is the consummate period that defines the legacy of who and what the Crows are. I'm not saying it's because I was there. I'm just saying that if we work from fact, that turns out to be the case. So I think it's fair to say this much time later, the organization has been given two extra decades to create something that transcends that period. So because of that, I feel like I got, I've got the right at this stage of the game to stamp that period of the band as the Johnny Colt era, because I'm the component, or the, I'm, I'm the only component that stays. Kind of goes with that argument about the Jeff C's Mark Ford thing. No one's going to argue about Mark Ford's ability to play a fucking guitar. That's a fucking monster. But Jeff Cease is the guy on the record that changed it all. You got to believe in chemistry. If the world were based on who's the best fucking player, you know what I'm saying? Then fucking Paganini would be, you know, well, Paganini's famous, but, you know, pick, pick whatever fucking nerd guitar player that can fucking shred all day, right? And I, and I respect all that. I'm not, I'm not diminishing them. I'd say nerd is kind of a, 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 a compliment. I'm just saying, I know that that's a weird thing to hear out of my mouth for a guy that hasn't said a fucking word in 30 years. But I'm just telling you what the stats say. So if we change this to a conversation about sports, my statement would not be bizarre at all. As a matter of fact, you guys would be color commentating it. <laughs> there you go. Well, all right. Johnny, this this has been we had high high expectations for this. It's it's exceeded it. And we're very happy to help you uh, promote Patreon, to promote anything that you ever do. You know, you uh, you have a friend in us. All you have to do is, well, heck, I got your cell phone number now. That's so, right. Uh, you got my number. So uh, you got any, my number. Anything that you want, you know, we'll, we'll help you with it. And if you've listened to our podcast and you say you have, we always let our guests pick a playout song. Is there something from the Johnny Colt era you would like for us to play out with? Johnny Colt era. That's a good era, guys. That's got some, that's chock full of hits. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, we can do that. Oh, wait a minute. What did I hear that sounded so fucking good? Let's do, uh, you know what? I, I put it on the other day. It sounded fucking great. Blew my mind. How about Curse Diamond? Excellent. That fucking track. I'm going to tell you, let me say something about Curse Diamond. Okay. I think I put this on IG. I don't really talk about stuff, but I tell you what, I heard, I remember hearing the playback of that track and fucking crying. I really liked Chris's lyrics in that song. I really liked the delivery. Things were getting very complicated for us at the time. The, the darkness hadn't swallowed us at the moment, but it was coming. Uh, and man, Steve's playing on that track is, I mean, like, you know, he had talked to me about Exit, for example, and then he sent me the track because I hadn't heard it in forever. And it was pretty cool. Not a fully written song, but the groove is fucking money. But Curse Diamond feels like a fully fucking written song. Steve is playing. The groove feels as good as Exit to me, you know, to me. And the arrangement, it's also a, a version of Rich Robin, Rich Robinson, his finest songwriting, guitar writing. I mean, the riff with the upstroke on it and then the weird bridge piece, like that segue where you, it's everybody just kind of firing on all fucking cylinders for me at a time where things, we could still do that, even though it was getting a little weird. So that's kind of what it's all like now, right? There's some amazing shit in there, and it's also kind of all fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with that. 
Yeah, maybe that's what the Black Crows are, just like a cursed fucking diamond. All right, everybody. We're going to play out with Alpha Morca, Cursed Diamond. A big thanks to Johnny Colt. Stay tall, everybody. I lose myself. I forget myself. Sometimes I fault myself. Yes, I might find myself. But then I Rain on myself Okay, so I stone myself And I might even find myself But then again What happens if I do So unzip my pride Baby, open me up wide now So I can show this to you